Make an impact on your interactive marketing through performance, advertising, community outreach, and technology. Be captivated by the people who are leading the wave of change in the online marketplace. This is who AdTech is. AdTech Connect, your weekly radio show. Get behind the scenes with industry giants. Be privy to the insider track. Witness the newest technologies. Make sure you're in the scene each week with AdTech Connect. You're connected now with your host. Welcome to AdTech Connect. This is Susan Bratton, your chair and host of the show today. We're doing this live from the floor of AdTech Chicago, and we have some great people lined up that you can hear about, speakers of all kinds, including with me right now, Tom Canal, the creative director of RMG Connect out of Minneapolis. I've known Tom for a couple of years. He recently left Fallon and started at RMG, and uh, he does beautiful work, and we're going to talk about both Tom, what he's up to, and some of the things he's done here at AdTech. Hi, Tom. Howdy, Susan. Great to be here. Thank you. So tell us about this new job you've landed. Well, I'm pretty excited. I'm actually starting next Monday, so I don't have a whole lot to, uh, of experience to talk about yet, but uh, it's a great opportunity for me and a great group of people and uh, some good clients, so I'm really excited to uh, dive in and get to work. You've just made a change from Fallon, which is a you know an agency famous for things like BMW, Citibank, really incredible brands. What are some of the brands at RMG that you'll be working on? I'll primarily be working on the 3M account. So, you know, if you think of 3M, it's more than one company. It's a bunch of smaller individual brands that are all under one roof. So there's a lot of opportunity to do, to do a lot of different kinds of uh, works with different people, and it should be fun. Now, you left Fallon, and at that time you were a producer. And now your new title is creative director. For those of us who don't always understand all the nuances of the agency business, could you explain to us what you did when you were a producer and then how that's going to change now that you're a creative director? Sure. Uh, well, actually, my background is more as a creative. The last uh, two years, I've been uh, in the producer role at Fallon, which essentially is figuring out what kind of technology, what partnerships to bring to bear to a project, and helping to uh, you know, frame the scope of an idea, um, set the tone and the direction, and work with the creatives to actually figure out how to get something done. And the creative director is more um, you know, helping form the vision, uh, directing the creative staff, really being a mentor and, and a guider to, to the, uh, the designers, the writers, the, the programmers, everybody involved. Now, everyone usually has the opinion that a creative director is this uh, person who wears black jeans, a black mock turtleneck, some very um, you know, clever watch or glasses, and they have a lot of uh, unique character attributes. You've always struck me as being one of the most level-headed, straightforward, easygoing, super smart, willing to do whatever it took kind of guys. Are you going to totally change your personality? No, I'll keep wearing the striped shirts and, uh, and the jeans, so I don't think you have to worry about me uh, taking on airs. Now, at AdTech, this, uh, this particular show at Chicago, our theme was the intersection of technology and creativity. I could almost describe that as what you do for a living. Um, we've done a lot of workshops and some keynote sessions around the creative process, the creative flow. Have you attended any of those? Have you picked up any tidbits? And what do you do to get your creative juices flowing? Hmm. More of the sessions I've attended are actually more along the technological side. So, um, 
I could speak about a little about those too. Um, actually, what, what I found most interesting was you, you can always visit the people's websites. Maybe you've even talked to them on the phone or know them casually. But this is a chance to hear their visions for the future and what, where our industry is headed. And that's the kind of insight that is really hard to get anywhere else. Tell me about some of the sessions you've attended or some of the companies you maybe saw in the exhibit hall and the technologies that you were interested in and your perspectives on those. Uh, well, it was really interesting. In the, the panel I was on in particular, uh, the company called Phenomenon, uh, you know, from the name, you may not know what it's about, but just uh, the way they're thinking about the future of where broadcast is headed as it merges more with the online uh, space. Uh, you know, a lot of people are trying to get their heads around that, but these people actually have a, a vision for it that I think was fairly unique and seems to be fairly well grounded. And amazingly enough, uh, they actually have a profit model that that they're moving towards. So it, it's something that I, I think is is uh, a fairly interesting prospect. So, Tom, the panel that you were on was called New, Rich, and Integrated, or something along those lines. I wrote it, and I don't even remember. But my original intent for that was to talk about ad models and new business concepts and where all that's going. What was your contribution to that panel? What were some of your opinions about next-generation ad business models? Well, the work I displayed was more from the content side of that equation. So, you know, everybody's trying to figure out how to reach new audiences, uh, you know, what are the technologies, and uh, what I really brought out was uh, what are some of the successful things that have been tried so far at Fallon. Um, you know, Fallon started out several years ago with BMW Films as being kind of one of the groundbreaking pieces in terms of branded entertainment, and the experiment didn't stop there. They've gone through Amazon Films, they've gone through uh, some projects with Nordstrom, uh, Silver Screen, and on to it recently Brawny Academy which is an online reality show, and uh, MSN Films, which is a series of uh, short films that are actually viewable in MSN Messenger, the uh, chat application, and uh, some uh, interactive work for Traveler's Insurance, uh, the, the Traveler's Instinct Challenge. So you've done in your history as the agency guy with a lot of clients a lot of content development, custom content development. Do you think we're scratching the surface of that opportunity, and where do you see that going? I think we're scratching the surface, yes. And, you know, Fallon's perspective on the whole thing has been basically, you know, it's getting harder and harder to chase your audience. So rather than chasing after them, trying to track them down, why not create content that the audience will seek out? And that model seems to be working out quite favorably. How do you get people to seek something out? Do you rely on buzz and viral marketing, or can you prime the pump in some way? Well, it all comes down to the fact that content is king. If you make something that's compelling enough, relevant to your audience, and uh, you know, with high production values, uh, you know, high creative values, if the buzz gets out there, people will find it. I remember that originally with the BMW film, BMW Films work that you did, uh, you used uh, famous people like Ridley Scott to produce some of the, the, ses the segments. Um, do you think that you need to have Hollywood directors' creativity to get that level of work done, or can you get that from your agency? Well, I wouldn't say it can't be done without that level of talent, but I do know, for example, with Brawny Academy, uh, Fallon employed uh, the Feist uh, at Feisty Flicks, who had been, um, part of their resume was Survivor 
and The Apprentice. So they're very experienced in the reality show genre. They know it works. They know how to make it happen. And also, they're a very good judge of what is good and what is not good. So if you have any doubts about the quality of your content, the integrity of your idea, people with that level of experience and background are a good bullshit detector. And, you know, if, if it passes their test, you can, you're reasonably assured that it's going to do well with the audience. Do you think that new platforms like the iPod and our cell phones are going to give content more legs and more distribution? Or do you think that it's kind of the number of people who are willing to consume a piece of content from a marketer is static? Well, I think it's going to grow. And you know, if you look at things like YouTube, where the cost of distribution, I mean, for the, for the uh, content creator is basically nothing. You throw it up there and away it goes. Uh, I think you'll see more of that happening. Um, as far as podcasts and, and uh, you know, video downloaded to iPods, that sort of thing, um, there, I think there's going to be a growing audience for that, too, as the, the devices get into more hands, uh, you know, the cost of, of doing the content goes down. The, really, the big hurdles there are with, with all the various distribution channels, you have to make sure that all the rights and legal issues are covered. Um, you know, it, it, it's quite a complicated process, and I know one of the people uh, on, on one of the panels yesterday, I, th- I believe it's from Johnson & Johnson, mentioned that a five-week podcast project that they had undertaken ended up being a five-month project due to the legal hassles involved. That's definitely the icky part of the business, isn't it? I was thinking when you mentioned YouTube uh, about consumer-generated content, and it seems like a lot of marketers are using this format of letting the customer generate content as the way to engage them. Uh, you know, Lexus did their program where people could create something, and then Lexus would put it up on the billboard in Times Square, and all the little tiles turned into the car. And there's a lot of that. Marketers have gotten over their fear. Well, not all, but some marketers have gotten over their fear of letting their brand be exposed to consumer manipulation, if you will. Where do you think that whole model is going? Is it dangerous? Is it going to evolve? What's your perspective? Well, we did a similar thing for Time Magazine back in December for the Person of the Year initiative. Uh, we created a system whereby people could upload photos to a website or uh, you know, have their photo taken by a roving street team in Times Square. And the photos that were accepted were actually displayed on the Reuters billboard you know, framed in the Time cover, uh, on, you know, on, on Times Square Live. And the trick there was there had to be some sort of audit process in place. Uh, we developed a whole back-end system so that everything could be viewed, uh, you know, filtered, and so forth before actually going live. So I think the trick there is, yeah, you have to, you know, trust the consumer somewhat, your audience, but at the same time, you have to have some control in place over what actually ends up being presented to the public. So there are ways to get around it. I still feel like that ad model, and uh, I don't I don't mean this to be insulting, but it seems like everybody's kind of doing the same thing with that ad model. What do you think is the next step in the evolution of that concept? Boy, hard to say. Um, I mean, everybody's trying stuff so rapidly right now, and as, as you pointed out, one thing catches on and everybody does it. So, um, you know, I, th- I think whoever can break out of that herd mentality and does something really unique, um, I think they'll be the next big thing. Um, you know, for a while, the subservient chicken was, was the, the big thing that everybody talked about. And 
something like that is so unique that any attempts at copying it are just bound to fail because it'll be so transparently uh, copycat-ish. You know, the next person who comes up with something that's that unique, that outrageous, and, and, and that intriguing, I, th- I think is going to have a hit. So this is your first ad tech, and you both attended for the first time, and you were a speaker. Give us a couple of impressions of what you thought it was going to be like and what it's really like. Well, I had a really great time just meeting people. Um, You know, in addition to to attending the sessions, you know, having lunch with people in between sessions, talking in the hallways, bumping into people, and and just, you know, getting all sorts of perspectives uh, from within the industry and and people maybe from outside the industry looking in. we all have the same people we talk to all the time, and, and uh, we have our friends in the industry and so forth. But, you know, getting outside your little comfort zone of, of uh, acquaintances and friends and really hearing things from people that you may not otherwise bump into, I, I think is really intriguing. Yeah, because even if you work with your clients a lot and vendors come in and pitch you all the time, it's not quite the same, is it? No. No, this is quite different, and, uh, you know, You'll get to contact people from maybe some, you know, some wonderful companies like Coca-Cola that may not be a client that you have to deal with on a regular basis, but uh, you know they have insights, they have all kinds of things that they're trying to do, and you get to hear something from you know a perspective that you wouldn't otherwise get to hear. Well, I've been talking to Tom Canal. He's now the creative director at RMG. Oh, I don't think I said that right. Let me do it again. RMG Connect. Well, uh, we've been talking with Tom Canal. He's the new creative director at RMG Connect out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Tom, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your insights and coming to AdTech. Thank you, and uh, thanks so much for inviting me. <laughs> Our pleasure. We'll be back soon. This is Susan Bratton. Sit tight and don't move. AdTech Connect. We'll be right back. Once a tool used exclusively for communicating with the media, PR Web was the first company to develop a distribution strategy around direct-to-consumer communication by implementing Web 2.0 technologies. PR Web has completed the online communication loop by directly engaging your audience with your news. For example, PR Web is the first newswire to integrate press release trackback. Whether you want to dominate your market or just make a little noise, PR Web is here to help. You thrive in the marketplace and the media. PR Web. Now, back to AdTech Connect, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here's your host. All right, we're back. This is Susan Bratton. I'm live at AdTech Chicago, and we have Michael Moore, the Director of Interactive Marketing from Nestle's Purina Division, and Mike's second year here at the show speaking. Say hi, Mike. Hi, hi, Susan. How are you? I'm doing great. So uh, tell us a little bit about the panel that you were on today and your role at Purina and some of the things that you've been doing. Okay. I uh, head up the interactive marketing group at Purina, which is all of our consumer-facing web activities, our websites, our online media, and everything else we do that uh, touches consumers. And I was at EdTech today on a panel discussion about blogging, RSS feeds, and podcasting, of which we've been fairly active in most of those areas in the, um, in the last year or so. Also on the panel with me today was a fellow from Johnson & Johnson, their AccuView division, and then two people representing Hinkle Adhesives, uh, a woman who was with Hinkle and someone from her agency. So did you think it was amazing what Hinkle could do with duct tape and podcasting, Mike? 
I thought it was truly amazing. Who knew that there were podcasts about duct tape? But apparently they did a pretty innovative thing. And the fellow from J&J also has done some pretty innovative things with uh, teenage girls as an audience and talking about contact lenses. Well, I can remember that you've done some pretty crazy things. Um, I recall that you had a guy on the road taking video of really weird pet things. Is what? Tell us about that and what you did with all that footage. That guy still exists. His name is uh, Ted, and he is based in St. Louis. And we send him out just to find funny pet stories around the country. For those listeners who may be old enough to remember Charles Kuralt on the CBS Evening News, it's analogous to his On the Road series. And he comes up with some of the most amazing stories. Uh, recently, he was at uh, Bush Stadium in St. Louis to film something associated with Take Your Dog to the Ballpark, Pooches in the Park in St. Louis. Um, he was down in Hutto, Texas, for the Wiener Dog Nationals uh, miniature dachshund races that happen down there. And he just finds these amazing stories. Uh, we film three to five minutes worth of stories, and then we broadcast it online via our own websites, as well as Yahoo and AOL, and increasingly YouTube and Google Video and any other places that will take video content from us. I'm definitely going to see the wiener dog footage. That sounds better than I can imagine. As a matter of fact, I live in Los Altos, California, and one of the things that we have every year that everyone anticipates is the annual pet parade. And there's a woman who owns a little dachshund, and she has a pair of panniers that she puts across its back that look like two buns, and she walks that little dog in the pet parade with his little buns between him. And that I, that's like one of, sadly perhaps, that that's one of the highlights of my year. Well, you've always been very innovative, Mike, in uh, leveraging technology, leveraging the Internet to market your great products to your consumers. And, And your consumers are devoted to their pets. So in a way, your job is easy, but in a way, you make it hard on yourself because you're always forging new ground. Tell us about some of the things you've been doing lately in the technology innovation space. We are lucky in the extent that uh, we know that the pet-owning population is a very information-seeking audience, and so there's lots of different ways to get information to consumers. And in the technology space specifically, with the emergence of all the devices, whether it's a mobile phone, the MP3 player, PDAs and things like that, we know that consumers are no longer tethered to a desktop to get that information. So we've been doing a fair number of small experiments trying to just test the waters with ringtones, for example, or SMS tips to the mobile phone to get our information to consumers in a manner that they wish to receive it, whether it's on the mobile phone in the uh, MP3 player through our podcast series or even with uh, PDAs and what we can do with those in terms of downloading information to those types of devices. So it's really us trying to keep up with consumers as their information needs and the way they want to receive that information continues to change. Is there any wish that you have with regard to today's internet, the world of today's internet marketing, that that you would like to have, something that's driving you crazy that you'd like to change, something that's not scaling fast enough, anything where if I could wave my magic wand, it might help you accomplish a marketing goal better than you are now? 
I really wish for more adaptation of, of video technology because I really do believe that the future of the web is going to be moving pictures, not so much web and pictures. And we're seeing that with the advances of YouTube and video at Google.com and a couple of these other places. Another site that just popped up is a site called PetVideo.com, which I think the URL is great, and it's all about pet videos that people have uploaded there. And I'd really like to see a greater adaptation of video type of content delivery for consumers. Yeah, I remember when I started out in 1996, 10 years ago at At Home Network, and we were doing the first broadband advertising, and that's exactly what we wanted. And I think it's starting to come to fruition, but doesn't it feel like it's taken forever? Yes, it does. It seems like it's taken forever, and the technology exists, and if you look at broadband penetration of over 50% of households these days, I mean, it's there. It's just a matter of getting more consumers or more manufacturers like ourselves to just make the video content available to their consumers. Now, I've known you only for a couple of years. Jim Nail introduced the two of us when he was still at Forrester, and he's at Symphony now and doing very innovative things. Um, how long have you been at Nestle, and what was your career before you got into Interactive, and why did you go the Interactive route? It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a circuitous route that I took. I've been with Purina for 20 years. Before it was part of Nestle, it was actually the Ralston Purina Company, a publicly traded company um, that was acquired about 2001 by the Nestle organization. My career at Nestle has all been in the marketing side. I was brand manager of just about everything on the dog side of our business. Um, spent a couple of years in our selling organization, what we call Custom Development Group. And then came back from the selling organization and started up a new group internally called New Ventures, which was about 1994-95, which was really the advent of interactive that really started. And that New Ventures group really morphed into an e-commerce group. Because if you think back to the start of the web, it was trying to sell everything online to consumers. And so we started with some of the grocery delivery companies, Peapod, Streamline, Webvan, all of those great companies that, you know, well, Peapod still exists, but most of them don't. And then that morphed into the pure play verticals like Pets.com and Petopia and Petstore.com and all those type of places. And we supplied products and made our expertise available to those companies. And then as that business died off and they figured out that they can't sell products like ours directly to consumers and make money at it, uh, that enabled me to morph into the head of our interactive marketing group responsible for all of our consumer-facing web activities. So do you have one of those uh, Pets.com sock puppets? I have almost a complete collection of Pets.com stuff, including the sock puppet. I think I have most of the magazines that they published. I think I've still got a couple of their T-shirts, and if there were some other tchotchkes they had, I think I've got them scrolled away. They'll be worth something on eBay one of these days. They definitely will. I have a feeling your retirement's going to come from selling all those crazy tchotchkes from the dot-com time. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being on Ad Tech Connect today. I really appreciate it, and I'd love to have you back for a longer time, and thank you for speaking at Ad Tech. Thank you, Susan. It was a pleasure to see you, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to everybody from Ad Tech. This is Susan, and I'll be back in just a second with another guest live from the show floor. Sit tight and don't move. Ad Tech Connect. We'll be right back. A rose by any other name would still be the same. Move over. 
more, Shakespeare. You need to differentiate yourself from your competition. Do it by aligning yourself with a company who has earned the trust of Jupiter Media, the NHL, and Lionsgate Films, among others. Moniker.com is the most secure ICANN accredited register on the planet, offering you domain registration, hosting, domain sales, and acquisition services. Wrap that up with 24-7 support. That's your winning combination. M-O-N-I-K-E-R.com. More than a name. Now, back to AdTech Connect, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here's your host. We're back. This is Susan Bratton. Thanks for tuning in to the AdTech Connect live radio show from the floor of the Chicago Sheraton. I have somebody who I absolutely adore with me right this moment. Henry Copeland is the CEO and founder of Blog Ads. And he's with me and not for the first time at AdTech. You are doing a session today. Henry, why don't you say hello and tell everyone what you did this morning at the show. Hey, everybody. I had a great session this morning. It was basically podcasting. Uh, we had a bunch of great corporates. We had Purina. We had Johnson & John- Johnson AccuVision. And then we had Duck Tape, if you can believe that. Three fairly stodgy or, let's say, conservative brands busting it out in podcasting. It was amazing because I'm watching corporates try to cope with the idea of blogging, and they don't get it. Or they can't get it. It's not that the people don't get it. The corporate infrastructure can't get it. But podcasting, for one reason or another, these guys are all over it. And we talked a little bit about that. Why is it that they can do podcasting and they can't do uh, blogging? And basically, it boils down to lawyers. Lawyers can kind of pre-vet something that's going on on a podcast, whereas they can't do that with blogging. That's A. B, um, they're, they're comfortable with the fact that people are talking. You can't read it. And therefore, it's harder to litigate. So somehow that's how it's sneaking through. So look for more on podcasting from guys, these conservative characters. Well, Henry, tell me about blog ads. And for listeners who might not be familiar with it, just a little bit about your company and how you came to create this wonderful entity. Uh, well, I wish, wish my wife was here because she... Uh, basically, I, back in '02, I had a brief bout of insanity, brief bout of insanity, uh, in which I, I said, gee, blogging, there's something special going on there. We must be able to marry that up with advertising, and advertisers are going to go crazy. They're going to love this. Uh, well, we opened up for business, and it was a full month before we sold our first ad, $35 ad. Um, of course, four years later, everybody in the world is, oh, blogging, CGM, we're all over it. Uh, but at that point, it was a fairly obscure little entity. Um, At this point, we are dealing with 1,100 bloggers, uh, many of the biggest and most famous, Daily Coast, Perez Hilton, all the guys and gals that people are reading. Um, And we're still convinced that the IAB units that everybody's, you know, pretty sold on, the standards at this point are failing when it comes to consumer-generated media, so-called consumer-generated media. Consumer-generated media is very much bottom-up. It's very much uh, conversational. And the old IAB units are really basically publishing 1.0. It's still this we-talk-you-listen mode. We have one idea, and you better take it or you better leave it. And people are turning their backs on that kind of stuff. And so I think you're going to go through, well, you are going through a kind of intense period of reinvention here. Um, The standards are going to break down, and we're going to move into new standards. But it may be a couple of painful years for everybody. 
So you have 1,100 bloggers in your, essentially your ad network. You're, an ad, you're a blog ad network. Um, tell us about some of your competitors with web blogs, with um, federated media. How do they compare and contrast to what you're doing? And uh, obviously there's room for lots of networks, you know, because there's lots of ad networks as well. But just give us a sense of who the other players in the market are and how they compare. So when it comes to the other networks, you've got uh, Weblogs, Inc., which is now owned by AOL. They're very strong on technology. Uh, You've also got Nick Denton's Gawker Media, which is doing an excellent job both in gossip, um, a bunch of the verticals. Uh, You've also got Federated, which is very strong at this point in technology. It's all centered around Boing Boing. Uh, Dig is also another of his big titles. Um, let's see. So you've got Gawker, Federated, Weblogs, Inc. Who else is out there in terms of ad networks? Am I leaving one out? No, that's that's basically it. I mean, we we took the view that it's not only creating an ad network. You had to create a technology and had to create a new idiom. And so we spent a lot of time talking about that. I would differentiate between what we're doing and what they're doing in that we've created you know, an ad serving technology and a really an ad unit that's very focused on um, CGM whereas all those folks are serving conventional IAB units. We're also a fair amount bigger. We've got 300 million impressions a month, and I would say they are doing maybe 150 million aggregate across the three of them. Um, I guess the, the other thing about what we're doing is, you know, with 1,100 blogs, there's a lot of kind of discussion amongst the bloggers at this point about which direction we're going. We've got a forum in which bloggers are talking about, okay, where should we be taking this thing, and which advertisers are talking about where, where we should be taking this thing. So there's a sense in which we're leveraging the actual, you know, the, the community. You mentioned that you have a unique ad format that's a non-banner standard kind of a thing. That fascinates me. Tell us exactly what that is, if you have a name for it, how it performs compared to the standard ads. Give us all the juicy details. Okay, standard ad units, as you know, appear one at a time up at the top of the page or along the side of the page. A blog is very much away from the traditional portal in which you have a whole bunch of content in one place. A blog, you've got it running down the page. We created a unit that was going runs contiguous to that. So in a long series, you've got a series of ads, which hopefully, if they're done right, become content in and of themselves. It's not easy to ignore them because like the ads in the back of the New Yorker where you've got that column, you know, boom, 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 you've got 10, you've got 20 ads. You're like, wow, something's going on here. It becomes a little kind of a communal bulletin board in a sense. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is we mix up text and image. And so you can have a big image if you want, but you can also have 300 characters of text. You can have more text if you want it. Um, You can post multiple links in there. So it's, again, not this kind of dumb, uh, you know, we've got one thing to say and you better you better click on it or else. It's, you know, gee, here you can download our podcast, here you can click to leave comments, here you can, there are a whole bunch of things people can do. It's, it's basically a mini website. So it's a chance for you to kind of insert yourself into the conversation in an interesting way rather than just m- launching into a uh, cocktail party kind of with a billboard strapped to your body. And so does that ad format have a name? Uh, We have traditionally called it the blog ad per se, but over time we've realized we're going to have a bunch of ad units because we've just launched a new version of our code and we've got a bunch of ad units coming out. So we're at this point calling that ad unit the mini site. 
sounds to me like you could work on some names for that. You need to have some crazy, clever marketer come up with a whole panoply of names for all these new ad units. Because I think innovation in the area of ad units around blogging is something that's it's nascent, but it's going to be powerful. I agree with you that there is a place for very unique formats. I'm glad to see that you're innovating, and I'd love to spend some time. I'd like to get you actually back on the show for you know a little bit more than our quick you know flyby discussion and we'll go through what some of those are and how they work and and I think the listeners would be interested in that. Um, what did you do? You're such an erudite man, such a beautiful writer. You're so well-spoken and articulate. What did you do before you got into this? You know, you, you got this twinkle in, the, twinkle in your eye around blogs, but what was what was Henry doing before blogs were invented? Uh, I worked on Wall Street in the 80s, got bored with that, moved to Europe, became a journalist in 91. Uh, and it from 91 to 98 was screwing around in journalism, writing for a whole bunch of publications. Started doing web development in 96. In 98, had the idea of putting a whole bunch of newspapers and magazines online. So we have a company that provides websites for newspapers and magazines. Um, got 80-odd newspapers and magazine websites in Europe. And then blog ads grew out of that in 02. What's your dream for blog ads? What's your exit strategy or your big... <laughs> <laughs> I'm ruling the world. Fantasy. I don't want to rule the world. We have no exit strategy. Um, I'm no. I really. I'm living. I. I went to see the the Leonardo uh, exhibit here at the Museum of Science and Industry yesterday, and there was a whole part of that about inventors and basically I love the creativity of this and I love the fact that I can say I want a new ad unit and we can design it um, you know programmers willing and customers willing and my idea would be to do, do this for the next 20 years I've got some of the most fascinating writers in America that we're working with you know daily you know Marcos of Daily Coast uh, Mario of Perez Hilton these guys are just you know they're really creative fun people you know who would want to give that up? So, I mean, we've got at this point 18 staff. I would be very happy to not take this past 30 staff because I think my own meager management capacity would be outgrown at that point. And so, you know, it may be that when we get to 30 staff, we deal with fewer people or I don't know what we're going to do at that point. But we're pretty happy on our pretty humble trajectory, frankly. There ain't nothing wrong with being satisfied, Henry. Good for you. I'm pleased that you love what you're doing. I'm happy for the innovation. And uh, thank you so much for giving us some time today. And thank you always for doing an excellent job, both coming up with ideas for ad tech sessions and doing artful moderation. We'll have you back on the show soon. My great pleasure. Ad tech is the best event I go to. I'm astonished by what you guys have done. Well, how many? Can I ask you a question? How many? Um, you had a huge growth in San Francisco. Is is it similar in Chicago? We had uh, we had six thousand people last year in San Francisco. We had eight thousand this year in Chicago. We had about twenty four hundred last year, and we have about three thousand this year. So you know, it's a moderately much smaller, commensurately smaller market, but still very good numbers. So we're seeing good growth here just as well. And uh, the Chicagoans love to have us. It's a great show for us. So we're glad to be here. And thank you for your kudos. I appreciate. Appreciate it. All right, this is Susan Bratton, and we'll be back again with some more interesting people like Henry from the show floor. See you soon. Sit tight and don't move. Ad Tech Connect. We'll be right back.
Over 4,000 clients around the world are utilizing effective content-based solutions from InfoSearch Media with the expertise of over 200 professional copywriters to work for you. Studies show that the number one factor visitors consider before making a purchase online is trust. And nothing creates more trust and loyalty than well-written, informative content. High-quality content also generates free search engine traffic. Content is definitely king. Visit InfoSearch searchmedia.com today now back to ad tech connect only on webmasterradio.fm here's your host this is susan bratton welcome to ad tech connect our guest today is kathy beamer kathy's with arc worldwide and she has a fabulous title experience planning director Hi, Susan. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Everyone should probably hear about ARC Worldwide, because although I know the company well, thanks to Sally O'Dowd, the best marketing manager in the business, um, not everyone does. So will you tell, uh, tell our listeners about ARC, and then let's get into what you do. Well, ARC Worldwide was formed two years ago, but it was formed up of legacy companies, uh, companies that have been around for decades. Um, and we have four main areas. We have interactive, promotions, retail, and direct. And I'm a specialist in the interactive department. So um, I've been in the industry for about 12 years. I started at uh, Anderson Consulting before it was Accenture. My first job was with the multimedia factory. So my first job was going to was designing kiosks and uh, CD-ROMs and, and goal-based training scenarios. And then we transferred um, our entire department over to the Internet in 1994 and started the Internet Center of Excellence. So that's kind of how I got into the whole Internet field, and I've been in it for about 12 years now. You look very young to be in it for 12 years. You must have started right out of elementary school. (laughs) So today you were on a panel talking about user experience and the creation of user experience and what goes into that. Why don't you first design what, first define what it is that you do and what your job is and then describe what you talked about on your session. Sure. Well, my job is called experience planning and it's, it's sort of an odd title because it's a marriage of the planning role from the advertising side. So the, the strategic planning role and then also from the interactive side, more of the experience design side of the house. So in my previous life, I was always doing ethnography, doing shop-alongs with people, trying to really figure out what the user needs are. Um, we would you know, first understand what was known about the audience and what wasn't known, and then try to find what, what that was um, from a very behavioral perspective. So I output that in... Um, into personas or insights that can help the creative team brainstorm what the best solution would be for the users. And then um, the second half of my role is doing uh, interactive design. So I do the site maps, the interaction models, work really closely with the creative team to make sure that what they're coming up with is is not only on strategy and not only is going to support the needs of the business and the users, but also is usable. Let's go back to the very first thing you said, which was you used to work in the field of ethnography. Would you describe what that is? And then you also said something about doing shop-alongs. I like anything to do with shopping, so tell us all about that. Spend extra time on the shopping part. Sure. Well, ethnography is really, it's been thrown around a lot these days. It's really from anthropology. And so I'm not an anthropologist, but it it is from the anthropology realm. And what it really is is just understanding people's behavior and getting out there with your consumers. So different things that you can do for that. You can have them do diary studies, for example, for men's products and and keep a diary of how they're using men's products day day in, day out. The real principle behind it is that 
that um, that users don't really recall what they do a lot of times and sometimes when they do recall they're recalling incorrectly so what we try to do is we try to understand what their needs are and the shopping process comes in for things like for example Whirlpool is one of our clients and so we want to really understand the the shopping process so if you are a replacer if your appliance is broken or if you're remodeling your home your needs are very different you may have information different information needs at different times and we want to make sure that we understand what that shopping process is both offline and online so we can understand how to support that in the best way. So give me an example of what kinds of things people do when they're in the replacement market for a Whirlpool washer and dryer. Where do they go? What do they do? What's that kind of pathing and how do you intercept it to transfer them to a Whirlpool? make them a Whirlpool customer potentially? That's a really good question because the du- it's a very duress purchase. I think it's the, the dishwasher will be the shortest purchase cycle. So if you have a broken dishwasher, you're going to be wanting to replace that very quickly. It is a more stressful decision um, and you're very switchable. So you may think you want certain features or a certain brand, but when you actually get into the store, it's very easy for the salesperson to switch you onto another brand. They it can be a confusing process because it's something that people don't shop for very often. Hopefully, it can be something that they're only buying once every 10 years. So it's not a very informed purchase. It's not a very frequent purchase. And um, that's more of sort of the duress purchaser. Uh, The remodeler purchaser, it's a little more optimistic. It's a little bit more the dream kitchen mindset. I mean, we all watch the the HGTV and the trading spaces, and we know what it's like to sort of be in that mindset. So um, that purchase cycles longer, and they're usually not as constrained by things like size. So, for example, if you're you're a replacer shopper, you may need to get a a um, refrigerator in a certain size because you have a space where those constraints aren't as necessary. And you really need help, though, when you're a remodeler to understand what the possibilities might be. It's hard for people to visualize things. And so, um, you know, visualization tools are very important for a remodeler in a way that it wouldn't be important for a replacer. So you've learned all of these things, and then your job is to understand these the pain points and the dreams of the consumer and translate that into insights and then build tools on the website that help that customer um, get fulfilled by those needs. Is that how it works? Yeah, absolutely. We work really closely with our creative team. Um, the good thing about working at ARC, and this is why it's been kind of fun to have this transition, is that we're not only working with the interactive side, but we also work with the direct and the retail side on Whirlpool. And so it's it's great to see your work in different channels. So you can have an impact on how the retail setup might be in the store itself to help people understand when you, you walk down the aisle and see this huge line of of Whirlpool washers and, and other brands as well and not really understanding what the difference is between these branded fe- sub-features, you know, all these, these names that they come up for the features. So... Um, it's really about understanding the insights and then trying to work with the creative team, work very closely to concept features and functions that maybe the user never thought would be possible. That's that's one pitfall that you have to watch out for. If someone asks for a feature, a certain feature, you really want to get underneath that and find out what the root is behind that. Like, what are they really trying to what are they really trying to accomplish and achieve? Because we may be able to take that back to our creative team, that nugget of what they're really trying to achieve, and brainstorm even more ways 
to be able to fulfill that. And the other thing is when users come up with ideas, usually it's a Me Too idea. Oh, I used this on this website, and it was a great feature. That's why all the travel websites look the exact same. If you look at all the airline sites, they all have very similar features and functions. So... Well, I think you have a fascinating job, and one of the great things about AdTech Chicago is that we've podcast all the sessions, so anyone that wants to hear more about how you create personas and apply those consumer insights to companies like Whirlpool can listen to it there. And Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You have a wealth of knowledge, and we appreciate the few minutes we had for you to share them with us. Thank you, Susan, for having me, and thank you for AdTech for including me as a speaker. You're most welcome. This is Susan Bratton, and we'll be back with another ad tech speaker in just a minute. Sit tight and don't move. Ad Tech Connect. We'll be right back. For the last decade, millions of visitors seeking top ranking have visited their site. When it comes to the internet marketing expertise, one name clearly stands above the rest. Bruce Clay Incorporated. With a flexible, time-tested, and spam-free process to SEO and PPC, Bruce Clay has become the number one choice for companies of all kinds seeking to improve their search engine ranking, utilize their latest tools, training, consulting, and services. Let Bruce Clay create a tailored solution to meet your internet marketing needs today. Bruce Clay Incorporated. Now, back to AdTech Connect, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here's your host. This is Susan Bratton, AdTech Chair, and I'm live from the show floor of AdTech Chicago, and I have... So lucky for me, Rex Briggs, the CEO of Marketing Evolution, whom I've known for about 10 years. Hi, Rex. Yes, back when you were 12, right? (laughs) I appreciate that on the eve of my birthday. Uh, Good to see you again, Susan. So you're here at the show. You came to see what's up. I haven't seen you at an ad tech for a little while. I'd love, first of all, to get your impressions about what's going on here. Anything that you, you know, kind of through the Rex filter, some perspective. Yeah, it's a, it's a good show. I mean, it, we've uh, check in and out uh, at ad tech every now and again to really make sure that we're up on the trends. And I think the uh, it's amazing how mature the industry is, but it's really spreading out where there are some people that really get it and are s- ultra sophisticated. There's others that are going to scratch in their head saying, yeah, you know, this internet thing's real. How do, how do I learn more? It's really amazing the range that, that we're seeing here. Um, that makes it particularly difficult for me to program the content, as you can imagine, because I have such a, I have to kind of go for the middle and then disappoint a few people on the fringes, and I always hate to disappoint anyone. So an interesting and uh, illuminating observation. So for anyone who doesn't know about marketing evolution, talk a little bit about what you do. Sure, we're the leading marketing ROI company that measures really across the media, specialty and internet, but measuring television, magazine, radio, events, you name it, we measure it. And we really try to make it simple for clients to understand what action they take. And a lot of them are finding that internet is playing a larger role in their media mix and they want to figure out how they do it better. And that's really what we're about. How come you called yourself an, a marketing? I know it was. I know it was um, intentional. You called yourself a marketing ROI company instead of a research company. Why'd you do it? Uh, research is such a rearview mirror. I mean, who can drive uh, safely looking at the rearview mirror? I mean, what you need is more of a navigation system, right? Tell you where you are, where you're going, and that's really what we're about. And at the end of the day, our clients are successful if they increase marketing ROI. In fact, a lot of them here looking at ad tech are looking at interactive technologies to figure out how do they get better marketing ROI. And, and, and what we do is we measure it. So, yeah, it's research, but it's really about driving those end results. And that only happens when you combine research with action. 
So you have a lot of formulas, patents. Um, you're, you're a deep thinker, Rex. You always have been. You're really good at thinking through the process of things. One of the things that you have is a process for creating comparability across different media types to weight them and rate them. Another thing that you're really good at is teaching organizations how to take that information and make it actionable. So start with the first one. How do you measure different types of media? Maybe use one example of how you do that so that you know that it's really apples to apples. Uh, great, great question, and, and a challenging issue for companies is to figure out, okay, we do all these things, how do we know what works? But now it's a more sophisticated question. Not only does it work, but should I spend more on it, and where should I take that budget from? How do I reallocate to get better results for the same budget? And in a really simplistic sense, let's say that you have Internet, you have a website, you have email, you have television, and you have out-of-home advertising. Maybe that's not so simple, maybe it's a lot of things. But the question is, uh, you've got to have a comparable measure. And it's not reach, it's not how many impressions you delivered, because that's not marketing ROI. It's what impact did we achieve against our main objective, whether that's sales or, or uh, brand perceptions, like repositioning a new brand uh, or building awareness. And we use a combination of surveys and uh, behavioral measures uh, to quantify that and to level everything out. And Unfortunately, there isn't a short answer for how we do it. So instead, what I'll say is that there's a lot of white papers that we've done. We were just honored with by ESAMAR, the global research organization, uh, who looked at over 30,000 papers over the last decade and uh, named our practice for measuring media cross-marketing best practice. And that will be published in a book. We can give uh, any of your listeners an advanced copy of it if they really want to get deep into how it works. I love how you segued into self-promoting your new book that's coming out. Very elegant. So you better start telling us about that right now. You have a book coming out. What's it called and what's it about? Well, actually, that was uh, an ESAMAR publication on best practices. So I was public- plugging their book. But you're right, I probably should be plugging my book instead. <laughs> it's, uh, it's less nerdy, uh, though we love the honor of being an ESAMAR for the best practices for our methodology. Uh, my book, which is What Sticks, co-authored with Greg Stewart, the uh, CEO at the uh, IAB, um, he really uh, he wrote this in part as penance for all the money he spent in marketing, not knowing what worked and what didn't work. And when he saw our methodology, he's like, wow, I wish I had this when I was working on Amex's account and P&G's account because it would have uh, really allowed us to be much more efficient and effective with marketing. So the book is really about those challenges. Uh, what sticks is about uh, the marketers who throw things up against the wall to see what sticks, and most of it doesn't. Wanamaker was right. Uh, a lot, there's a lot of waste in marketing. But we really help dissect what works, what doesn't, and what marketers can do to guarantee they get better results. So what part did Greg do and what part did you do? Greg made me write the book, so he gets a lot of credit because I would not have sat down and, and made that happen. Uh, he and I have worked together uh, over the years, and so I did a lot of the writing, and he's working on a lot of the marketing. But he also was a phenomenal uh, uh, collaborator in helping to get the writing right uh, when he told me, you know, this is way too complicated when I was explaining how communication theory worked, you know, using neuroscience and so forth. We then really simplified it, and so he and I just really were a great team working together to get the, the, the ideas and measurement right, which really come from marketing evolution and the work that we've done and his experience having used that as a marketer and as, a, as an agency person to say, how do we make sure that it makes sense? It's fun to read. It's enjoyable. Um, so that was how the team worked. What's the most nerve-wracking thing about having a book coming out? 
uh, realizing that your job's not over after you just spent seven months of every single weekend writing it, uh, and now you have to market it. How do you make it a bestseller? We've gotten phenomenal traction from the people that have read it. They love it. It's fun to read. It's enjoyable. Uh, Bob Leo DC, uh, the CEO of the uh, Association of National Advertisers, sets the one book you need to read as a marketer, uh, and he read it, so that's good. Uh, now it's a question of how do you market it. So we're challenged with some of the same issues people here at AdTech are challenged with, which is now we don't have a lot of money p- promoting a book compared to the brands we work on that spend hundreds of millions of dollars. How do you make it work? So we're paying attention to search engine optimization. We're paying attention to online uh, blogs. We're paying attention to how PR and buzz works. We're paying attention to how you b- go about buying contextually relevant uh, uh, display advertising. And so we're here as much because we're experts on how marketers ought to do it, but also we're looking at from how. Now, what do we learn from the smaller marketers here that are really successful? Yes, so the real real tough guerrilla marketing, how can you learn about that? Yeah. Now, did you attend any of the sessions while you were here? I did. The session that uh, both the keynote and the session that I really liked was uh, Karna uh, Crawford uh, from Coca-Cola along uh, with uh, Steve uh, from uh, FedEx, who was just really, really great session. And uh, Karna in particular is a client of ours at Coca-Cola. And so I was very interested to hear her perspective uh, outside of behind the uh, hollowed walls of Coca-Cola talking about advertising and marketing and her perspective of what works and where there's flexibility. Really great session. I think that that's one of the things that ad tech still does a phenomenal job is they have great interesting content. Um, I haven't made my way down to the exhibit hall, which is where I'm off to next. It looked like there was a lot of energy going on down there, so I'm excited to see uh, what, what, uh, what new marketing ideas are out there for me. So I appreciate that you liked the session um, called a marketer's POV since I was the moderator. Thank you so much. And um, what was it about that session? Hearing from the marketers directly, what did you learn from them that made that so interesting to you? Because you talk to marketers all the time. Yeah, we. I mean, we uh, really get a perspective from marketers behind in the boardroom and behind the hollow doors with the politics of the organization going, and that's one perspective. But one of the things that uh, that Steve said that I don't think he would have said inside the the halls of his own office was that uh, he finds some of all the measurement and dashboards and so forth somewhat baffling. Right? There's so much data, and that really for us is critically important because we try to get to the essence of what are the measurements and metrics that marketers need to manage their business to be successful. And if his perception is is that there's this baffling smog of data swirling around him, then, uh, then that, that really is clear for us as an organization that we need to take that back and uh, ensure that our product and our services, Marketing Evolution, is simple and straightforward and easy to use. Uh, and that, 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 I think, more than anything else, was like one of those different people take different epiphanies from it. But for me, that was like, uh, you know, wow, that's a real challenge. I thought he had a lot of honesty saying, well, a lot of times we use our gut. And uh, he also said, uh, sometimes we just look at each individual program and we don't look at it holistically. We look at how one thing is performing against the needs that we have for that project. I appreciated their honesty about that too. Marketing evolution's role, if you boil it down, is to really tell a marketer where to place their money, where to spend their money in media, which buckets, which channels. How have you seen that evolve with marketers as you've brought that cross-media data back to them? What, what changes have they made that have been the most significant and what have been the most surprising? 
we see, usually for each marketer we work with, we expect to see about a 20% improvement in their overall ROI from the beginning of our measurement to, you know, as we begin to get data and begin to deliver it. And I think the biggest shift had been uh, three years ago uh, or five years ago, the question was, where do we invest our money, TV, Internet, magazine, big media questions, right? Now the question is, within a media, within Internet, you have your own mix within the media. How do we optimize that? And we're now seeing that you can achieve 35, 40% results, improvement in Internet's effectiveness simply by optimizing within the Internet how you're doing your targeting, how you're using different elements of search and online display together and things like that. That's been a huge uh, transformation. Um, and I think that what you expect to see in the future is that marketers become increasingly sophisticated and recognize that they need more flexibility in their marketing. The thing that Karna said from Coca-Cola, the thing that Steve said from FedEx, was they don't have a whole lot of flexibility in their marketing. And if you really begin to get more learning about what works and what doesn't, the thing that's going to keep you back from realizing those huge increases in ROI and those hundreds of millions in increased profitability that's possible is inflexibility in your marketing program. Internet excels at that. Some of the traditional media need to catch up with that. Some of the marketers need to catch up with, with uh, embracing flexibility as a value in their media planning cycle. I know that one of the things that you've told me is that um, you can come up with all these great pieces of information for a, a company, you know, here, you should shift these dollars here and these dollars here and these dollars here, here and it almost is an overwhelming uh, request based on just the, the history within the organizations. How are you helping companies get over that hurdle? Uh, every company needs a cop, right? Uh, a cop for us is a communication optimization process. And, and what, what happens in that process, in that planning uh, tool, is that you go through and before you ever see the data, you have an honest discussion with all the key players in the organization that make media and marketing decisions. But if you saw that this program was delivering better ROI than others, we can quantify and measure it. And if you saw that, what actions would you take? Who would take that action? When would you take it? And it's amazing because what happens in companies right now is that they see the data, it attacks their own vested interests to some degree, or it builds up their vested interests, and there's political maneuvering, and people are no longer operating in the best interests of the firm. When you do scenario planning, when you put a cop in place to make sure that everyone's being civil and following the laws of the road, uh, then what happens is that people begin to all get together and say, these are the right actions to take for the good of the company, and we all have consensus on that. And then when they see the data come in, good, bad, or indifferent, they act upon that because you've created a group commitment to do what's best for the company in advance. And that's where we're really seeing marketers shift and reallocate and, and, and achieve the increased ROI that, 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 uh, that the data and the learning uh, um, so plainly paints for them. What's the process for scenario planning? How does scenario? I've always heard scenario planning. It sounds like there's a formula for doing that or a process for doing that. What is that? Yeah, you probably heard scenario planning because of the uh, Iraq War and things like that. It's uh, it came, comes from military planning. It was uh, the idea of thinking about all the contingencies, and probably in the context that you heard about was clearly that the U.S. did not do enough scenario planning. Um, in, in organizations, scenario planning really applies pretty simply. It's, it's, uh, it's a total of six hours commitment of, of the team's time, so it's actually not a time-intensive thing to do. 
first meeting, uh, two hours, is what success look like? Really interrogating the definition of what success is. Not just accepting sales as a definition, but pushing them further to really determine exactly what does success look like. Is it sales from new customers or existing customers? You know, and so forth. So, um, th- with that clear definition of success and everyone bought in to that definition of success, the next meeting, the next two-hour meetings, is going through what's called action standards. Johnson & Johnson was a great pioneer in this work. They have a process called Test, Learn, Deploy. And in that deploy part, they've defined in advance what actions we're going to take if these results come in above expectation or below af- expectation. We've adopted that approach, working with them to develop it in the first place. We've extended that so that we look at all the different media and major planning elements of it. And the company then has a tangible, written, hard copy document that says this is what we're going to do, depending on how the data comes out. The last two-hour meeting is when the data comes back in, and you have the measurement, and you know what the results are, and then that's just really holding everyone accountable for taking action. You know, accountability isn't measurement. Accountability is taking action on the measurement to really improve results, and that's really, in a nutshell, what uh, scenario planning is, those three, those three key meetings. You really got your start, I believe, when you were doing the XMOS research with the IAB, the Internet, Internet Advertising Bureau. Um, and the process that you developed is really the thing that you filed patents on for marketing evolution. How much has what you started, probably what was it, eight years ago or so with the IAB, how much of that has changed between what you did then and what you do now in that process? Oh, in three fundamental ways. It it really has been first and foremost that we thought in the past that really good measurement research, highest quality, you know, validated by academics and and, uh, and and leading organizations like the Advertising Research Foundation, ESMAR, was enough. We now we we realized about two years into it that uh, building a better mousetrap for measurement is critically important to a very small segment of people that really understand that you can get the measurement wrong, it can lead you to the wrong decisions, and therefore you need the highest quality gold standard measurement. But we realized that that's not enough, that that's when we came up, secondly, with scenario planning, which is having the great data and really accurate isn't enough to change an organization and and help them achieve better marketing ROI. You have to combine it with a process that helps them make those decisions and act on it. The third one was a realization that uh, having a good process and having great gold standard measurement needs to be combined with a phenomenal service delivery. And so we've, in the last couple of years, have been focused on bringing in really senior, bright, intelligent people with lots of experience in advertising and marketing that can lead the client engagements. I was just on the phone when, you, when we caught each other with uh, our, our PhD, Craig Ferns, in, in neuroscience uh, in, uh, from Dartmouth. He's based in our New York office, uh, and he's one of our research managers. And having really talented people like that uh, becomes that extra thing that makes, uh, I think, marketing evolution special. So I think the evolution in the research has been to realize that it's, it's not just measurement, it's not just the process for change, it's not just the great service quality that you provide to the clients, it's all three of those together, and that's what makes a great firm. What does someone who has a neuroscience degree have to do with cross-media research? Uh, it's all about getting inside the mind of the consumer, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, and uh, it's amazing what we'll resort to in terms of uh, people who really understand exactly down to the neuron level how, how ideas are formed. Uh, Craig studied how uh, communication was acquired uh, in, in human beings. And when you think about that, when you're advertising a new brand, a new idea, 
Uh, it's great if you can just uh, measure your success by click-throughs and direct response. I mean, that, that, that's an easy, simple world. Most big brands need to think about how is meaning created with the brand and how does that meaning lead somebody to prefer one brand over another and have their behavior follow that. So to understand that down at such a sophistication level that you can make it plainly easy for people to understand it is really the brilliance. The complexity, you, know, you would not want to read a dissertation in the, in the data dashboard that we deliver. Instead, what we want to do is make it really simple. What does all that great thinking mean directly in terms of clients' actions and behavior? So what Craig does every day is to use his great intellect and uh, neuroscience background to figure out what actions does this mean for a client to take and understand why some brands are successful and others aren't. Okay, so I must be getting tired because when you were talking about Craig, I was thinking, I was picturing him in my mind as this um, caveman. It's like the perfect name for a caveman. But here he is doing this really effete kind of work. That's <laughs> so quite the juxtaposition. I'm having a hard time rationalizing that in my mind. So you have written a book. You've built a company with 50 people. You have twin boys. How are you finding, h- how the hell are you balancing all of this? What's your, what are your coping mechanisms? Well, first I have to say I love the idea of me, Craig, me, caveman, me do neuroscience. Uh, that's an interesting combination, I think. Um, yeah, you know, the, ba- the life balance thing is uh, for me is that I'm full tilt. Uh, I love the work that I do. I, I enjoy that. And uh, um, it is, it, you know, I could make a sick joke about using my twins as test cases. Uh, one's only getting the Internet. The, only, the other is only getting television. And I'll let you know uh, in 10 years how that turns out. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, uh, that, that I do with the book is I had to give up every weekend for the last seven months pretty much writing it. And so it's, uh, um, so it's wonderful to be getting back to the family and having the weekends back for the family. But, you know, I love what I do. And, and I think that uh, from a family standpoint, we get to do uh, occasionally they join me on some of the fun trips and so forth. And I am having such a fascinating thing watching the world of media that they're growing up with. They can't understand that they can't watch TV programs whenever they want to watch it because they've lived in a TiVo world, right? I mean, every program's uh, controlled. They're playing on the internet now, uh, just beginning to, to dabble with that, with, with the games and that linkage. And, and I think that, that the world that they live in is just so different from the world that I grew up in, which had, I had two TV channels in my home because my parents refused uh, to get cable. And frankly, there wasn't that much on cable. And, you know, and in the, my earlier years, there was no cable. And I look at their world with over 100 channels in their household. Plus, we have the computer hooked up to the TV so we can download and watch on TV anything they want, whenever they want to watch it. It's... You know, it's wonderful to see that your work and your life blend together uh, to where you learn from both. You've obviously dedicated yourself quite a bit to marketing evolution. If you had one day to spend totally for yourself, now don't edit this response because you already know what it is you want to do. Tell me what it is. Well, I was so disappointed when I was in Shanghai two weeks ago and I didn't have time to go up to the Great Wall of China and to stand on that wall and to think about how different the world was when we th- thought we could build a big structure to divide one section from another. In a digital world where everything moves seamlessly, I'd love to just stand on that wall and contemplate uh, that idea and to go all the way over to that part of the world and to have a phenomenal experience in Shanghai but not to have stood up on that wall and, and thought about that thing was a disappointment. Uh, I don't know what I'd do with that one day, but uh, but uh, I think that the Great Wall would be uh, high on the list, I think. I think you picked a good thing because I climbed the Great Wall last year. And 
you know how when you um, grow up and you go back and you look at a house in, in which you grew up and it looks really tiny and you think, oh my God, I used to think this was so big. Or you look at your school from your, your elementary school or whatever. Well, almost nothing ex- exceeds your imagination. Almost everything is kind of a disappointment when you see it in real life, if you've seen it on television in our media ex- image exposed society. I, when I went to the Great Wall, and I took the, I went to the Badeling, the easiest one from Beijing, and I took the little fununcular, the little ski thing up to the top and got deposited, thank God, because it's a hell of a hike. I could not believe the immensity of that structure. I mean, my brain didn't compute it. And um, if you have the opportunity to create that day for yourself, you, you definitely should. That was an awesome choice. I do have to make a plug then for one of our clients, which is Discovery Channel. We measure a lot of their advertising for their own programs. They have a program that's going to, called Atlas, that's going to plug uh, or go through, plug people into a different country. China's, I think, the first one they're doing, and you're going to get to see it from the perspective of people that live there. Uh, and, uh, and it's supposed to be an amazing program in high-definition television. So, unfortunately, my only experience for, for now is going to be watching Discovery Channel's Atlas. But I wish I was there with you uh, walking, walking on the Great Wall. Maybe maybe Shanghai uh, in ad tech coming up. Exactly. And one of the other things I think might be fascinating to know about you is some hobby. I bet you have probably no time to do them now, but have you had any kind of a weird, like, do you collect Civil War coins? Or I'm thinking you do something really random knowing you. Uh, race cars are my weakness. Yeah, so uh, I have a couple sports cars, and when I have a free weekend, I'll uh, go to the uh, go to the track and drive, uh, you know, in the triple digits. And uh, there's nothing like uh, going a hundred and something miles an hour into a really tight corner because the only thing that you can, you don't think about work, you don't think about uh, internet, you think about the moment of, of your mind and body all working together to to handle that situation. And there's a Zen experience that happens when you're that focused. And I think it's an interesting combination. Of of your physical body uh, overcoming fear and, uh, and then mathematically calculating exactly how do I take this corner at maximum speed. And, and, uh, and I love that. that. That does something for me. If you like race cars, you'd like rock climbing, and it's a little bit easier to accomplish in an afternoon. Tell us about the cars that you have. Well, I, back to rock climbing. I used to do that. I love rock climbing, except now it's too, wor- too much work and I'm not in this enough shape. And it's a lot easier to press the pedal and turn a power steering wheel than it is to have to pull slump my whole body up a tight rock wall. But that's what I used to do in my youth, so maybe it's the same brain thing. Um, I have a, I have a Ferrari uh, Marinello. That's my really fun sports race car that, that I drive, and I have a Porsche Boxster, which is sort of my daily driver. Or when it's raining, that's a lot of fun on a track because it's so well-balanced and, and well-behaved. And then we have a couple of go-karts, and our boys, who are both four, um, at four and a half, they can begin to, to drive uh, little electric go-karts. So my wife and I will go back on the track. She's, she's into historic race cars, so at some point we'll probably add one of those, and uh, uh, you know, she and I will both uh, drive it together. She, she loves race cars, so it's kind of fun too. Well, you're lucky to find a woman who likes cars. That's, uh, that's a feat. And you live quite close to skiing. Are you getting any skiing in? You know, I was on the uh, uh, ski race team in high school, and I have not gone skiing in the last uh, really eight years because the industry has just been so crazy, and I've just been working uh, uh, so much. My brother's a pro snowboarder, so I did try snowboarding, uh, which was, uh, um, and I imagine 
having been on my butt most of the time and thinking this is really hard, I imagine that's what the internet must feel like for most traditional marketers. You know, you're trying something completely new. It's similar. I mean, it's a board still. You're still on snow. But, you know, you just can't quite seem to get it right. And the thing that my brother said to me, which was rather wise for my younger brother, uh, was uh, you got to give it four days. And uh, I said, why? He's like, because after the first day, it's just it's so hard. You're not going to want to do it again. But you're going to feel yourself getting better and better. And by the fourth day, you're going to be like, you know what? I can master this. You're, you're not going to be able to do what he does, which is double backflips upside down. But uh, he was right. And I think marketing has that exact same parallel, which is uh, if you're new to ad tech or just trying to figure things out or you've seen a new thing like social networking, you've got to give it four days. You've got to give it a few experiences to, to really evolve and figure it out. Well, I think we have to end on that beautiful note, but remind everyone the name of your book and when it's coming out so they can make sure to get a copy. You can find it now uh, on Amazon for pre-orders. It's uh, What Sticks, uh, Why Most Advertising Fails and How to Guarantee Yours Succeeds. And you can also find uh, more information at whatsticks.net. Fantastic. Rex Briggs, Marketing Evolution. Thank you so much for sharing both your work and your personal life with us at AdTech. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Good to see you. All right. We are over and out. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show and all the crazy and fabulous people at AdTech. Thank you.